Welcome to this podcast for Classical 91.5. I'm Julia Figueres. This week's Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra concert stacks up three pieces that haven't been heard in quite some time and an RPO premiere of a fourth. And also making her premiere with your Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra, violinist Tessa Lark, Tessa Ann Wardster, your RPO's music director, joined me today. Welcome back, Ward. Great to see you as always. And welcome to Rochester, Tessa. It's a pleasure being here. Yeah, you're kind of, uh, you, you're kind of, uh, on, a, on an upswing right now, your career. <laughs> well, that's that's the hope. <laughs> you, yeah, you <laughs> yeah, keep doing the, that and not the other. <laughs> yeah, that's the plan. But is is I mean, is it weird because all of a sudden you're all over the place? You have a new CD. People are talking about you everywhere. Is that like this odd feeling? You've worked, and then all this time, and all of a sudden it's it's working. Well, it feels quite nice, actually. No, um, actually, I think the, the the strange thing is having the CDs finally. Because on the one of the CDs that I just released, Fantasy, I actually recorded it in 2016, and I got such cold feet when I was going through the editing process and just the concept of having this recording of you out there for the rest of time for, for people to reference is just really <laughs> terrifying, especially when <laughs> I, someone like me, I don't know about you, Ward, but my interpretations and ideas about music sort of change of every day. Yeah. So it's it's hard to, <laughs> yeah, to just set something in stone and, you know, put it out in the world. So anyway, it took forever for those the, that CD to come out, but finally it did. And then two others came right after it. Um, and it's been really cool to see um, the attention that recordings bring and the people that I've met too. It's it's amazing. A lot of my fans that I've met, they, they know me from YouTube, from the internet, from recording. So these things really are important, though of course it is all about live music. Um, and it's nice to be playing more live too as a result of the recording. You know, I've, I've talked to people and who say they will not listen to their recordings. They, that They can't do it. Now are you a listener and a cringer or are you a, well, that's okay and move on person? I'm I'm more of the cringe variety, um, but sometimes I just I'm sitting there on a plane or something and twiddling my thumbs and I think you know what I'm curious to see how I feel about this today and and it's it's just it depends on the mood sometimes I don't know I, sometimes I'm kind of proud of how it sounds but but most of the time I'm cringing there there are always <laughs> things that I'm hearing that I want to improve. You get the side gig as it were because not only are you a terrific classical fit, uh, violinist you're a, a great fiddler as well so which came first the fiddling or the classical side? <laughs> um, well, the mandolin actually came first. I played the mandolin um, when I was four years old, and the first tune I ever learned was Boiling Cabbage Down, <laughs> which is, I guess, a good counter to Twinkle Twinkle, which is the, the tune that most people learn to start. Uh, my dad plays banjo, and um, so I was always picking around with him. So bluegrass was the first music that I really played, but when I started the violin a couple years later, I started with Suzuki training. So that was primarily classical training with the violin, but playing bluegrass and folk music and improvising, it's it's so much fun. So ever since the mandolin, I've I've stuck with it. You know, a lot of classical musicians are really loath to improvise. This is like the worst word in the world. You say improvise, and <laughs> then they freeze up. No, don't make me do that. Um, are you comfortable uh, improvising inside of a, a set of classical music? Like if you're playing a, a concerto, 
Mm-hmm. Do you do you have any problem just improvising a cadenza? Sometimes there's involuntary improvising <laughs> that happens <laughs> within classical music. Um, I would say something <clears throat> like Bach or Mozart. Um, it, it's just it's too bad that a lot of classical players are uncomfortable improvising because that's actually the real old school <laughs> way of going about things. Um, so so with Bach or Telemann or other Baroque style pieces, I love adding embellishments and um but it, it's funny M- improvising is not miraculous it's it's like anything else if you practice it for a while you get better at it um like us having a conversation now um, i'm not thinking of every single word i'm going to say to you i've formulated sentences my whole life so i can talk with you and improvising is the absolute same thing so i i wish a lot of classical players um would would dabble in it a little more but i've um i write my own cadenzas sometimes and and they change a little bit each performance so that's that's my way in for now um into improvising in classical music You've actually had concertos written for you. I know Michael Torkey did one that took your fiddling uh, background into account for it. So what's that like to have this thing created, basically because of your talent? It was it was amazing and, and bizarre. I uh, commissioned him to write me a sonata that's called Spoonbread. Um, I was playing recital at Carnegie Hall, and they have a wonderful commissioning program. So they asked... Um, if I wanted to commission someone, um, and basically, if Carnegie Hall is showing up in your inbox asking if you write a piece, you have you know greater likelihood that the composer is going to say yes. So um, that was super exciting, and I chose Michael Torkey um, because actually my boyfriend, who's also a composer, said you should really check out this guy's music. It's amazing, and I fell in love with it right away. I was listening to his, um, you know synesthetic or whatever the word is the music um, that's just super beautiful Miami Grands in particular um, and through that process recording actually after performing Spoonbread and then recording it during the recording session Michael Torkey said you know uh, he got to know my bluegrass side and he said if I wrote a bluegrass inspired concerto would you play it I said duh and the recording engineer who was there, Silas Brown, said immediately, I'll record it. And then um, that went to the Albany Symphony and David Allen Miller and Michael Torkey have a long-standing relationship. And they said, we have the money to make a recording. And it just sort of snowballed like that. Um, so, so that's incredible to have a new piece that has such a beautiful life beyond the first performance because there's a co-consortium of 11 orchestras um, to get this piece to come to life but then to stand on stage and hear this music yeah that that's partly inspired by you is um it's it's a wild feeling of course i didn't didn't write the stuff but but i feel like um there's this community that came together to to raise a child almost <laughs> this piece it's i just feel very attached to it and um super proud and it, and it's fun to hear people um get inspired by american folk music too like michael torkey he didn't know much about bluegrass before going into this so i sent him a list of recommendations of people and styles of music to listen to and he went from there and to hear him 
remain to hear Michael remain true to his style, but still really um, catch a, a deep authenticity of folk music in the piece um, is is really amazing. Yeah, you're playing a piece um, coming up with the RPO that has not been played in that hall with the RPO in decades, decades. It's Alban Berg's Violin Concerto. Um, it's inscribed to the memory of an angel. So let's take it from there. Who is this angel word? <clears throat> well, uh, the angel is Manon Gropius, who is the daughter of Alma Mahler and Walter Gropius. And we could spend uh, a podcast or two talking about that whole situation and Alma Mahler, but, you know, we'll save that for another day. Um, short story is they were all very close, uh, and Berg... Um, was quite fond of Manon and uh, thought she was a really special person and she died tragically young and suddenly and um, Berg was actually in the middle of writing uh, Lulu his opera which he didn't fully complete um, before his own tragically sudden death Um, but uh, he already had this commission that had been um, uh, from Louis um, Krasner Krasner, yeah Mm -hmm. and um, so he was sort of uh, you know, he had these ideas for a violin concerto kind of, you know, in somewhere way in the back of his mind, and then it came to the front uh, because of this event when Manon Gropius died, and so he took his attention away from Berg, uh, from uh, <laughs> from Berg, from uh, from Berg's Lulu is what I was thinking, uh, and put it into the violin concerto and, and wrote it um, before he went back to the opera. So it's, uh, it's a very personal piece for him, I think, and there are a lot of um, just really touching... Uh, motives that he uses and the way he writes for the orchestra I think is just it's so beautiful he quotes Bach um, beautiful chorale uh, Estes Genug which is you know the the text is is about you know the end of suffering and going to to peace in heaven and it's it's quite beautiful Uh, and the way he incorporates incorporates it into the the second movement of the concerto is just I mean it, it it's just so moving every time it never gets old Tessa, it's not structured like a traditional concerto. It has a very different structure to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in um, two formal movements, but um, it it plays kind of like a, a fantasy in a way. Um, the The structure is extremely complex, especially mm-hmm. in the first movement, and the closest it gets to any recognizable form, I would say is probably the second movement when there's um, a hint of sonata form Mm -hmm. in there but um, it's the structure I would say is is more based on life and death and transfiguration and it's just unbelievable how he captures that in sound Um, and again with Menon on his mind and the death of somebody too young um, it feels to me like the first movement explores this this beautiful, um, pure, young life. And then the second movement is the death and grappling with this as um, a human who survives the young child, but also at the end, um, it almost sounds like death. And it makes me wonder if Berg himself had even had a near-death experience to capture the sounds um, in, in this concerto. And and I feel like his sound world, too, um, he's sort of experimenting with diatonicism and serialism, 12-tone uh, rows, and, and 
and this this world of tonality and atonality in a way is a beautiful metaphor of life um, because we're always looking for the joyous and and beautiful and perfect quote perfect things in life but it never is right there's always this uh, uh, tint of of pain and so that that sound world that he captures is just it's it's so like you said Warren it, it just blows me away every time I hear it and in fact Burr never got to hear this play yeah he, he, he died before it was it was premiered so perhaps you're right Tessa perhaps he kind of knew what was coming without knowing what was coming when you play something this intensely personal uh, how do you can you step out somehow um, so you're not sucked into the vortex that the rest of us will be as you're playing it uh, it's it's actually really hard it's it's really taxing um, I tend to get enveloped in the music that I'm working on um, and and its character and and its its meaning and so with this piece um, it's Actually, I was um, practicing it uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I, I live with my boyfriend, Michael, and at one point, he came in to my room and knocked, and he just said, do you, you want to go take a walk or something that's really intense? <laughs> <laughs> and so even he was, you know, held captive by this music. It's just so much. It's it's so captivating. Um, there are some people actually at um, the rehearsal today, and they said I just couldn't stop, you know, listening to the rehearsal of the piece. There's something so intriguing in it. And so for me, um, I've had to sort of tailor my life outside of practicing Berg to make sure that I can remain sane, because I, I don't think there's any other way about studying this piece. I mean, there, there's a lot um, to find in it in terms of um, its, its structure and everything. So I guess in that way, you could take a more cerebral approach. But it's just unbelievable how he uh, reconciles the the intellectual and the emotional in this piece. Ward, the, uh, the 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 orchestral part I found really interesting because it's, for the most part, it's pretty spare. Well, he was uh, not only brilliant at you know this brand new. I, for me, Berg is kind of in a class by himself because, um, and it's interesting that we have Webern and Schoenberg on the same program because they were sort of together considered the second Viennese school which um, and you know Schoenberg uh, started the serialism 12 tone all that that we've uh, at least I'm sure m many of us heard at least something about but um, it, it the danger with that music is it can feel too cerebral and it um, and and it very often it does quite frankly um, but somehow Berg was able to combine serialism with tonality, as Tessa said, in a in a just a magical way that mm -hmm. it does not feel from the neck up at all. I mean, it's completely about the heart and soul. This music um, it requires tremendous focus and tremendous skill to play it correctly. But if you can do all that, oh my God, it just opens up this whole other world, and it makes you uh, if you know Lulu as well. And that was actually my introduction to Berg, um, my real, you know, when I first started really working on any piece of his, yeah, talk about diving in the deep end, right? Uh, my first engagement as a, in the capacity of a conductor in an opera house was as the assistant conductor 
for Berg's Lulu, the three-act version. Um, and so I didn't conduct any performances, but I prepared the whole second cast. And I mean, I, I had to learn that thing really, you know, backwards and forwards. And I just started to, to kind of understand his, his language and his sound world a lot more. And when we, when we work on this piece, the violin concerto, um, if you, if I didn't know that he was writing Lulu at the same time, I would still probably guess that. Cause I hear, if you know Lulu well, you hear a lot of Lulu in the violin concerto, um, you know, the, the human element of it, you know, a lot of the, the tragedy, the sorrow, the sort of, you know, Lulu is about a sort of a fall from just a long fall. It's a complicated story, but it's tragic. Um, and it's a different kind of tragedy, you know, the death of Manon Gropius, but the way he's able to, um, capture the the complexities of the soul and the human heart and how it reacts to situations like that is just breathtaking mm-hmm. and then when he when he adds the Bach chorale in I mean my god what a stroke of genius at the end mm-hmm. it's just so beautiful and you know there are there are moments where he he quotes you know sort of it's almost like cabaret music in Vienna at the time it's it feels very playful and casual and then there's hints of waltzes in there too and you you really get the the, the odor, the smell, the perfume of Vienna, especially in the first movement, mm-hmm, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that combined with this this uh, just intense lyricism and, and real beauty. Well, you, you talk about, you know, you were immersed in Lulu and you really got to learn his language. Mm. Uh, the average everyday concert goer is not going to have that time. Uh, True. Th- you know, the average everyday concert goer is coming in sitting down and about to hear a concerto that has not been p- played in this city for um, 30 years, almost, mm-hmm. f- almost 40 years. So what can you do to help us hear the language right out of the box, Tessa? Oh, my goodness. Um, I suppose, you know, I it's, it's not really an appropriate analogy, <laughs> but I was just thinking of, you know, someone like, like Picasso, who has this amazing um, mastery of form, but decided to explore it in a different way. And so when we look at it, we see, you know, there is a face, but it's it's not a face that we're used to seeing, um, but we can still decipher what it is. Um, and I feel like with, with Berg's music... Um, it's it's not the same because it is as you're saying Ward is it's so human and it it almost feels alive like it's its own being this music it you you feel its heartbeat you you can sort of almost hear the blood streaming through the veins in this music it it's so it's such a visceral experience so i would i would say for an audience member um to just think about this this idea that this music is about life and about death um, and and just to to listen openly and that the tonality might not be um, familiar to the ears but I think the intent behind it is something that we all know yeah this was um, for the premiere Webern was supposed to be conducting this and he was a no-show so Sherkin conducted it first time he saw the score was at 11 o'clock the night before the premiere, <laughs> and they had an hour and a Smooth half. Move. They did. They had only like an uh, an hour, hour and a half to rehearse this. How can anyone do that? I can't imagine. Well, I mean, one can only hope that the orchestra had played <coughs> some of Berg's music before, so that they were at least familiar with that 
vernacular because otherwise, I mean, that would be nearly impossible, I would think, to pull off. Must yeah. Must have been a fine, fine orchestra. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, also on the program is a Bach fugue arranged by the no-show conductor. Uh, so what does Webern do to Bach, Ward? Well, um, this has actually a pretty fun story attached to it. So you go back to um, the original composition of the six-voice fugue. Bach was, um, toward the end of his life, you know, venerated uh, master at that point. And Frederick the Great, who was also a musician, wanted to meet him. So uh, Bach went to his court, and um, when they met, Frederick the Great was um, taking great pleasure in showing Bach around and showing him all of his musical instruments. He had the very latest and greatest, including one of the earliest pianos, modern pianos. Um, And Frederick the Great wanted to... um, challenge Bach and because Bach was known for his improvisa- improvisatory abilities. I don't know if that's a word. Um, and so he said, uh, Frederick the Great said, uh, hey, Mr. Bach, I have this um, theme. I'd like you to improvise um, a six-voice fugue on it, which is pretty pretty incredible challenge to give anyone. And Bach said, oh, I, I couldn't do that. Maybe I'll do a three-voice fugue for you. So he did on the spot, three-voice fugue, and Frederick the Great was very impressed. Uh, but then Bach left, and he got home, uh, and he kept thinking about this subject, and he kept thinking about the idea of the six-voice fugue, and he so he worked on it. And he did realize the six-voice fugue, and um, after he finished that and several other pieces, he presented it all to Frederick the Great in a, it's called a musical offering, which is, a, it's a wonderful collection of works. But this six-voice fugue, now, for those of you who don't know, Bach is kind of the the grand master of architecture and counterpoint and all the the fundamental building blocks and the 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 base uh on which you know everything that came after Haydn Mozart Beethoven through Strauss through I mean through up to modern day composers Bach it all started with Bach and the king of counterpoint he really he really is uh, undisputed and um so but even for someone like that um, this is one of his most masterful works ever, this six-voice fugue. It is incredible. And it uh, I was telling Tessa earlier, I feel like a, a total music dork uh, because it takes me right back to those early uh, theory classes and counterpoint and when I first discovered how to analyze a Bach fugue and here's the subject, here's the counter subject, here's the bridge, here's the stretto, here's, oh, look, on the fifth of statement of the theme he just modifies a little bit here and this that and the other thing and it's so fascinating to to break it apart into little pieces and see how intricately it's like a fine watch the way it's constructed Mm -hmm. but then when it all when it's ticking and working perfectly it feels so organic and the structures are just so perfect Um, but because it's so complicated uh, it's difficult to pull off on a single instrument like a piano or an organ would be a little bit better because you have more colors at your disposal. And Bach never really was specific about who was supposed to play it. So Webern, many, many years later, got this great idea. I'm going to orchestrate it for the full orchestra. And what this does is it takes this enormously complex structure and clarifies all the lines because he'll take the subject, which, you know, say eight bars, right? And he'll break it into maybe you know, four or five different instruments who share the line one note after the next. So it's got a slightly different color and it allows your ear to follow it in, I think, a a more clearly defined way. But then all of the extra 
embroidery around that is is also more vibrant because he's got a full orchestra at his uh, disposal. And I think it's it's a brilliant idea. I love that it's on the program with the Berg because, as we said, uh, Berg uses Bach also. Um, and, of course, uh, Webern and Berg were contemporaries and both, you know, practitioners of the same style. So um, it's it's a great thing to include. Now, we're going to stay with that second Viennese school because now you have a work that's never been played before <laughs> by the RPO, which is Arnold Schoenberg's Five Pieces for Orchestra, which is, you know, pretty apt title. Mm-hmm. Five pieces. Cut right to the chase. They're five, five pieces. <laughs> That's what they are. I mean, you know, if you look at the second Viennese school, it's funny. There's, you know, three pieces by Berg. There's five pieces by yeah. Schoenberg. There's six pieces by Berg. I mean, there's all these different, they like to say six pieces, five pieces, you know, break it into into pieces. Um, but the the thing about the Schoenberg that sets it apart from the other two works, of course, the Webern is a realization of Bach's work, so it's not really an original composition. We'll be doing some original Webern later in the season, um, the Pascalia. But um, Schoenberg, uh, unlike the Berg, where you actually, I firmly believe that you will walk out of the hall uh, with a tune in your head from the Berg, because there are many hauntingly beautiful moments that will stick with you, and there are earworms that you can get from the Berg Violin Concerto, for sure, if you're open to it. Um, and of course, Bach is, you know, the melodies is really haunting. In Schoenberg, you're not going to get any melodies. There are no conventional melodies to speak of whatsoever. But what he's after in this piece is atmosphere, moods, extremes of emotion, effects, textures, and color. One movement, in fact, is titled Farben, which in German means colors. And it's very slow moving, and um, it's actually deceptively challenging for the orchestra because if, if you don't focus and really pay attention to where you are, you can miss the subtlest shift in uh, in color. It's a lot of sustained notes that go um, directly one into the other, so it, it feels very sostenuto, but it's a gently shifting picture constantly for that whole movement. Um, the first movement is um, called Premonitions, and it's very sort of foreboding and dark. There are these big um, violent utterances in the brass and huge outbursts, um, uh, quick, jagged uh, changes of tempo and things like that. So it's, again, very atmospheric and meant to kind of uh, shock you with some sort of foreboding that's happening. Um, there's a, a movement called, um, well, it's like, I guess you'd translate it like yesteryear, you know, think, thinking past. in the past. The yes. past. And, um, and it's actually very full of longing and, and these plaintive lines that get sung out uh, just in little fragments, little snippets, and they get put together in a, in a really hypnotic way, I think. Um, and it, um, it's challenging for the orchestra. The, uh, the end uh, is this uh, obligatory recitativo is what he titled it, which is kind of interesting. And then there's a sort of perpetual motion uh, movement, which is, again... Sudden change of fortune. Yes, it, it, it's very it's very kind of um, over the top, um, really uh, extreme. Everything is very extreme in this piece, but it, it requires the orchestra to think in terms of texture and emotion and drama, dramatic gesture um, above all else, because there isn't a dramatic melody to speak of. It's it's the energy that we can create cumulatively in all these moments, and um, it's really a different way of making music and it's great for an orchestra to do this 
Now, in the program, they make a point of saying this is a reduced orchestration, so... Well, his original orchestration was enormous, and so it's it's not unlike uh, some of the Stravinsky that we were talking about last mm-hmm. week, where it was just, it's better because the piece has a better chance of being performed, frankly, uh, if you don't ask for, you know, six clarinets and, you know, all this <laughs> stuff. Because, you know, uh, nobody carries, uh, you know, huge sections full-time, and it's always an augmentation issue. Um, so this is, yes, it's a, it's a more economical version, but nothing is, is missing. Uh, if you are if you know the Schoenberg Five Pieces by heart, you will enjoy this performance. You won't be shortchanged at all. We wrap up with um, a, a piece that was like uh, the Berg Concerto uh, late in life for the composer, and that's Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra. Uh, it's a towering work. Mm. It, it really is. Um, it was written toward the end of his life. It was a very fraught time for him. But unlike Berg, Bartok really did get to hear this one played. But, but you know, if you were to map out his life at the point that this piece was commissioned. Well, um, Bartok, first of all, um, he had a fascinating life, and his contribution to music goes far beyond um, his own works that he wrote because he was one of the first people to really catalog folk music, and he went out into the countryside and, uh, you know, met with folk musicians. You know, we were mm-hmm. talking about folk music earlier um, and really wanted to learn their melodies, their traditions, their sounds, their their manner of playing um, because he believed that it was something that might be lost if someone didn't, you know, kind of catalog it in a way. Um, and you hear the folk element very clearly in, in all of Bartok's music, really, but in, in the Concerto for Orchestra, uh, especially, it's it's very obvious in a lot of uh, moments, but um, he was also a very um, bold thinker. Uh, he pushed the boundaries in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, his tonality is he's not he's not in the second Viennese school, but he's again kind of in a class by himself. I mean, the way he uses modes, the scales that Bartok uses are unlike scales that other composers use. It's really like if you listen to one of his quartets or some of his other chamber music, and certainly. Bluebeard's Castle is opera that he wrote. It's like that sound, that Bartok sound, you can, it's identifiable. You know, he had really had an, a unique voice. Um, but none of that was really appreciated um, as it should have been in his lifetime. And uh, when World War II broke out, he fled Europe for the United States and um, didn't have much luck. Uh, in the U.S., you know, he was he was being he was a soloist. He was a very good pianist. He had a career, you know, to pay the bills, kind of as a as a piano soloist. He was teaching, he, but he was really kind of cobbling together everything so that he could survive. And then he got ill, and um, so he was in the hospital, and he was really kind of at death's door. And a bunch of musicians, and, broke, and he was broke, and he too. was completely out of money. So I mean, you know, he was really in a desperate situation for sure. And it was a bunch of his musical family, his musical friends, um, among them Fritz Reiner, who a lot of people forget he was involved in this story too, uh, because it was Serge Kusevitsky, the other great conductor in that club, uh, who got the money together and came to his uh, hospital bed, actually, uh, and presented him with a new commission for a work in with the Boston Symphony, where Serge Kusevitsky was music director. And it really kind of uh, bolstered Bartok's spirit. It kind of, you know, it gave him reinvigorated him in a way his health improved 
albeit for a short time, but enough that he was able to get back to work, get out of the hospital, uh, and write this piece. And he wrote it pretty quickly, actually. Um, and what he came up with was just astonishingly original and and I think it, it's a tour de force. It's a masterpiece. Um, they call it concerto for orchestra, of course, uh, and it sort of harkens back to the concerto grosso idea. Again, you can connect that back to Bach mm-hmm. and all that, which is another nice um, subtle connection in this program. But uh, this is on a much grander scale, and he takes every instrument family in the orchestra and features them prominently and very skillfully throughout the entire piece and every movement. And then at the end, everyone comes together in this big rallying kind of cry for humanity and unity and global peace and all that. And you know, it's, just, it's just a feel-good piece at the end, triumphant. All the good feels. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's wonderful. And there's a moment in it that is said to be um, Bartok dissing Shostakovich. Huh. Well, that's interesting um, because you're talking about the intermezzo. Uh, there was, there's been a lot written about this because he does take a quote um, from Shosty 7, the Leningrad Symphony. Um, and I've seen a lot of different theories be put forth about this and the most common I guess is that he was poking fun at Shostakovich because he apparently um, is on record saying that Shostakovich is overrated and he didn't really like Shostakovich very much (coughs) now well that's a whole other conversation but I I like Shostakovich but Shostakovich wrote a lot of music and not all Shostakovich is great but you know who, so anyway yeah that's yeah Bartok, let's not let's not, not a fan. get off on a on a tangent yeah. but Bartok, anyway not a fan well you know i like shostakovich though so Bartok, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. On the record. but anyway yeah on the record i like <laughs> shostakovich but anyway i don't think that was really it at all i've also even heard someone say that it, it's supposed to be a quote of uh, the merry widow by lehar which i think is really a stretch you know the the theme <laughs> it, it, there are similarities when the you know Donnie Lowe sings, uh, we're off the Shea Maxim. Anyway, again, we won't get off on a tangent there. What I think the real message here is it's a much more powerful thing because at the beginning of the intermezzo, you get this really carefree, light, folksy, mixed meter uh, chamber kind of music. And you get the sense that um, there's a musician who's playing for his friends with his friends kind of jamming. And then the violas start this beautiful sweeping melody, which is a direct quote from a popular song in the 30s um, in Hungary. And the, the line, the first line of it translates as something uh, something similar to, um, oh, my beautiful Hungary, how I love you so. And so it's a, it's a song about deep love of country and culture. And remember, um, Bartok had just been torn away from all that and there was an active assault on his culture and his home homeland by the Nazis at the time. So you get this beautiful, sweeping, rich, lush folk melody, and then something happens after the violas and the whole orchestra sing through this, and you get this strange march that comes in in the clarinet, and it's the Shostakovich 7, which is also a war symphony, of course. Quote, and that's the arrival of fascism in Hungary. And it arrives, and then you hear the woodwinds react <laughs> with this kind of nervous laughter chatter, like, what is going on? What is going on? And then there are these two really grotesque utterances in the trombones, which are not meant as just, you know, sticking your tongue out, ooh, you know, poking fun at Shostakovich. That's, that's a Nazi salute. It's two officers saluting each other because they've arrived in the center of the town. And then the parade goes full bore. The troops come in, and the townspeople stand by shocked and in total 
terror about what's going to happen. Then they have their little uh, parade, and then the parade moves out, and there's a moment of silence, and then that folk tune comes back again. But this time, it's muted in the strings, no dynamics whatsoever. It's completely hollow because the meaning has been taken out of all that text. And when you think about it like that, it just takes your breath away. It's a really personal statement about what was going on in Europe at the time. And it comes in the most unexpected place, in the intermezzo of all things, before the grand finale. But he doesn't leave us in that moment of despair for too long because uh, to open the finale, the horns have a very rallying call to action, this really noble fanfare. Bartok sort of telling everybody, all right, we're going to get through this. Let's all come together, universal brotherhood kind of thing. And it, and then it gets off uh, the strings. You know, there's like this three-bar cello rondo, so they're ramping up, and then they there's this bubbling energy that's just sort of so electric, it, it makes you want to just jump up and go. It's fantastic. And then, of course, we all leave the theater feeling much better. Oh, absolutely. No, <laughs> so, how can you? So, I mean, the, So it's, it's death in the first half and triumph. In the second, absolutely. There you absolutely. go. It absolutely. works out for me. There, there, he did revise this. So, which version are you using? You mean the very end? Yeah, yeah. The, oh well, Bartok re- did a revision on this after, after it was premiered. Yes, just the the end used to be shorter a little bit, and he thought it was too abrupt, so he extended it. But I mean, I actually have never heard it performed the original way. Um, I don't think it's done very often. So we're doing what you would expect as the standard. The, the, your your average everyday Bartok, you know. Your pedestrian well, Bartok. No, there's nothing. There's nothing <laughs> average or everyday about Bartok, right. as you know. Uh, I want to thank you both for coming in and spending time with us, uh, Tessa. It's a real pleasure to meet you, and I look forward Likewise. to hearing your fiddling. <laughs> uh, and and uh, of course, Ward, it's always a pleasure. Eyebrow, eyebrow raised. Uh, it's a pleasure <laughs> to have you here. Um, if, I hope so. <laughs> if you would, always. If you would like uh, information about the RPO season, you can go to rpo.org. I'm Julia Figueres, and this podcast is a production of WXXI Public Broadcasting.